0: Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 50. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. While you're turning there, you need to know the context. God's people are sitting in the darkness of exile, and their complaint is what? God has forgotten us. God has forgotten forsaken us like a man has divorced his wife or like in the ancient near east when the families would get in such poverty they sold off their kids into slavery that's what God's done to us and God of course replied to them if you recall last week he gave us three images when you feel forsaken when you feel cast off he gave us three images the loving mother the engraved hands the restored walls you've not been cast off can a loving mother forget Still, they're in trouble, and the people of Israel, and God, here, they're in exile, they're in Babylon. They need a word from God. They are weary, and here's the worst part of their suffering. It's like a, it's like a self-inflicted wound. You know what I mean? Like, there's suffering, and then there's the suffering that's brought on, that, like, if you're honest, you brought on yourself. Am I the only one? Sometimes I'll be listening to a preacher, and the preacher will talk about suffering, and he'll talk about all the great promises of God to anyone who's suffering. But all the examples are when you're suffering, but it's not your fault. So be like, you know, you're suffering through some illness. God has a promise for you. You're suffering through sickness. Or you're suffering because you're being righteous, and everybody's persecuting you. Yeah. You, you've got the moral high ground, and because you're doing such good things for God, you know, you're like a martyr, and that's why you're suffering. All these haters are starting to hate on you, and, and all this bad stuff's happening, but hang in there. God's promises for you. You're suffering unjustly. You've got the moral high ground, and you're the righteous person, and that's why you're suffering. And I'll be sitting there like, yeah, I wish that were why. Like, you know, I, I, I wish that were why. But sometimes I keep waiting for the preacher to say, but is there anybody, is there any hope for, like, if you're suffering, and quite frankly, the reason you're suffering is you. Like, I did it to myself. Like, have you ever heard the expression, you made your bed, now you have to lie in it. You know, the the Bible, what Jesus says, a man reaps what he sows. And I always wonder, like, is the preacher going to get to the part, like, what if you're suffering, you're not suffering unjustly, you're suffering, like, justly. I cheated, let's say. And so, uh, you know, my family is now, I've lost their trust. Well, that, that's on me. I, I'm here because of my own addictions, maybe you're saying this morning. I'm, I'm here, and, and, and my addictions have led to this place. My life's imploded. I lied, and now my coworkers won't trust me. I, I, I'm suffering, preacher, but I'm, I'm suffering because it's like a self-inflicted wound. Has God got anything to say to me? Well, that, that's exactly where the children of Israel were. That's exactly. If that's where you are, listen. God had a word for them. God's got a word for you this morning. If that's you, you're going to listen up. There's hope. Now they're accusing. Obviously, they're accusing the Babylon. They're accusing God of forsaking, of 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 discarding them. So God starts by some truth. Real real talk. Look at verse one. Thus says the Lord. Oh, you you think I forsook you? You think I divorced you? Thus says the Lord. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? I'm sorry. Can you produce the legal document that ever shows that I divorced you, Israel? The certificate of divorce was a legal document. It actually goes all the way back to the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 24, where this is a certificate that's issued, that the the, the marriage is broken, and now this woman is free to remarry. She's been given the certificate of divorce. Some... Uh, some people say that the, there are Jewish sources that show they would have written on the certificate of divorce a list of grievances. Can you imagine? Here's the reason, and here's another reason, and here's another reason. Can you imagine how traumatic and terrible? And yet, um, my hunch is that's, that's probably how divorces start. They start by keeping a record of wrongs. Now, I don't think you write it up on the fridge. You know, you're a bum. you know, do it. Uh, But is there not this sort of internal scoreboard, this internal spreadsheet? Just over and over, you're you're keeping a record of wrongs of all those things. God's looking at Israel going, you think think that's how I work? You think that's how? You you think that's what happened? You think I gave you a certificate of divorce because finally you just sinned too far? Is that how my love is? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's interesting. If you don't want your marriage to ever get to that point, do what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says. It says love doesn't keep score. Here's how it says it. Love keeps score. No record of wrongs. Now, this is not the application of the sermon. This is all just free director's cut bonus footage. But some of you, that's the application you need to walk out of here. And whatever you need to do in your mind, you need to delete the spreadsheet that you're keeping with another person's record of wrongs. And then you need to go into the recycle bin folder of your brain and empty trash. Delete forever, okay? Don't just delete it into the trash folder. Delete it. Make it gone. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. That's what God's saying. Show me. You think I divorced you? Show me. Show me the certificate of divorce. Or maybe, maybe it's because I sold you into slavery. Okay, T- tell me, which of, to which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Help me, help me remember that I, the sovereign Lord God, got short on cash. And so I had to go to a creditor with my hat in my hand and sell Here, I'll give you Israel Is that what happened? Is that what happened? Am I short on cash? Did I have to sell you? Hmm? Did StreetsOfGold.com send a repo man to take back heaven's highways? Did I fail to make my monthly payment on the pearly gates I picked up at Home Depot last week? And now they're coming. is, Is that what? Am I the sovereign Lord short on cash? No. Real talk. And Israel knew it before he said it. No. You say I've divorced you. Behold, for your Iniquities, you were sold. For your transgressions, your mother was sent away. You say, I divorced you. No, Israel, you divorced me. You sold yourself into slavery. You reap what you sow, and you have sinned yourself into exile. I'm telling you, that's a word for somebody here. Because too many times you hear a message and it's like, when you've when you've done right. and and you're facing persecution hang in there god's got you this is a message when you've done wrong when you've made your bed and now you're facing the consequences when you're reaping what you've sowed and 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 there's no other way around it You, you if you and god are distant who moved you know what i'm saying god's saying it wasn't me i've been faithful and it never starts by the way it never starts with blatant disregard for god he's accusing israel of disregard for god it never starts with disregard for god it starts by drifting. It's a few Sundays here and there. You know, let a few things slide. Drifting, then disengaging. And from drifting to disengaging, then we get to disregard. It never starts with disregard. It's a slow process. But that's where Israel is. And, and, and you know that moment when, and maybe I'm alone, but you know that moment when you were a kid and you did something so wrong and your parents called you on it? That like at first you wanted to self-justify. You're like, no. I'm five, I should be able to steal the keys and take the truck, like, you know, like at first you justify, this is hypothetical. At some point though, they've got you dead to rights. There comes a moment of like surrender where as a kid you're like, I I just, I, I plead the fifth. Like I throw myself at the mercy of the court. You've got me dead to rights. And in that moment, like you win, checkmate. And in that moment, they don't let up. They keep piling on even more reasons why what you did was so wrong. That's kind of what God, it's like, You do realize I could have saved you, right? Like, on top of all that, I could have saved you. Why, when I came, look at verse two. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? I showed up, I I am powerful to save, and I offer salvation, and I couldn't get a single taker? Are you kidding me? Some people say the saddest verse in the whole Bible is in the first chapter of John, where it describes the word becoming flesh, Jesus coming to earth, and the saddest verse in the whole Bible in the first chapter of John. And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And it does break your heart. I mean, I've had conversations with Jewish people, and it's like... this is your Messiah. I, a Gentile, I'm lucky to be in this story. I praise God every day that he saved me. But this is yours and to think he came to his own in his own Was it when I came to my own was there no one? When I called was there no one? Is this is this hyperbole? Does it mean there was not there wasn't a single, you know, righteous Israelite who was trusting Yahweh? Well, apparently there wasn't enough. The the point is that, Come on, I could have saved. Or do I have no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die for thirst. I clearly have the power. Verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. I don't know what to do with verse 3. I don't want to make too much of this. But he might just be saying, I'm powerful. I could have saved. Hello, I can, I can make things night and I can make them day. I cover up, see like, like, like I'm covering up curtain. But I wonder if there's not more going on here. I wonder if this is not a symbolism of when did he make the sky turn black? Do you remember? If this is referring to the exodus, right before the firstborn, remember there were 10 plagues. When God got the people out of Egypt, there were 10 plagues. The 10th was the death of the firstborn. The penultimate plague, the ninth was a darkness over the land, a darkness that could be felt. What's darker than dark? Darkness you can feel, it says. So the darkness that could be felt, and right before the death of the firstborn comes this plague of darkness. Fast forward 2,000 years. At the cross, on Good Friday, right before the death of the only begotten Son of God was what? From noon to three. Darkness. Right before, verse four. Four through nine is the suffering servant. Four through nine, we meet, The suffering servant who christians believe is jesus follow me the last verse before the suffering servant he refers the darkness before the death of the firstborn i don't want to make too much of this but here's all i want to say if i've already lost you it's okay we're we're going to be back on track here in just a second if a poet today wrote that that would be exquisite poetry because there's layer upon layer upon layer of imagery Right before the death of the firstborn comes this darkness. Right before we meet the suffering servant again comes this darkness. If a person wrote it today, it'd be exquisite poetry. But if somebody wrote it 700 years before it happened, that's not just poetry. That's prophecy. That'll give you chills. This, is, this book wasn't written by humans, y'all. I mean, it was written by humans, but it had God as its author. It was written through humans. Is that not incredible to ponder? Prophecy. Well, okay, what are we supposed to do? Okay, this is, makes all the sense in the world. We, we, have, we have made our own bed. We've reaped what we sow. We're here and we're suffering and we deserve it. What should we do? God is not gonna tell you what you should do. He's gonna send you his servant. And at the end of verses four through nine come the application. So let's jump ahead to that right now and get that out of the way. 10 and 11, here's where this is going. Here's what you need to do. you're facing the consequences of your own bad decisions, you've you've done this to yourself, here's what you need to do. Who among you, verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? The servant, to obey the voice of the servant is to fear the Lord, and to fear the Lord is to obey the voice of the servant. It's verses like this, that people who refuse to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, "I, I like Jesus, he's a good prophet, but he's not equal with God, then how do you explain that to fear the Lord is to obey the voice of the servant, and to obey the voice of the servant is to fear the Lord? Right here, they're interchangeable. That's the deity of Jesus right there. If that's you, if you are ready today, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, you're here, you're saying, I'm struggling, and it's because of my own sin, I've messed up. Here's what you can do. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's what you need to do this morning. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God. With everything you have, lean not on your own understanding trust God, do it his way. It hasn't worked your way, trust in the name of the Lord. You say, yeah, but I, I, couldn't I get a flashlight? I can't see my way out of this. No, you, you're in the darkness, you're in a dark time. Apparently, you're gonna be there. Israel was gonna be in exile a while, but here's what you can do. In the darkness, take his hand. In the darkness, take his hand. I'd really rather have a flashlight. I know you would, but don't do that, don't do that. Because when you try to kindle your own light, that's your own shortcut, your own solution, you're gonna get into trouble. Don't try to kindle your own light. Look at the next verse. The opposite of trusting in the Lord and holding his hand in the dark is to kindle your own fire. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, you who equip yourselves with burning torches, oh, walk. fine, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you've kindled. This you've had, You have it from my hand, you'll lie down in torment. It's not gonna end well, you've tried that. This is a word for 2020, I think. Boy, Is that not it? The thinking that you can kindle your own fire. Have you not heard things like verse 11? Maybe you don't hear these words, but aren't young people told? I mean, not just young people, all of us. You've gotta like, you've gotta live your truth, you know? Where does that come from? It comes from sort of customizable religion. You know, like this website said this, and this life coach said this, and I'll take a little of what Jesus said, and I like this scripture. I don't like this scripture. I like parts of the Bible, but not this part. I put it all together, and I found what works for me. What am I doing? Kindling the light of my own fire. See, I'm trying to walk by my own light. Sort of a self-made religion. If you reject Jesus as salvation, if you reject Jesus as the only way to salvation, you're kindling your own light. This was said in another place in the Old Testament this way you know it? Trust, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? And kindle not your own fire. That's right. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. But he may not give you a bright light to see the future because he wants a relationship. He wants you to hold his hand in the dark. And for anyone in the dark, listen, oh, there's a... <laughs> uh, there was a Christian, contemporary Christian music artist named Wayne Watson, and in 1995 or six, he had a great a chorus to a song about walking with Jesus, and I think it was based on this verse. He said, I'd rather walk in the dark with Jesus than walk in the light on my own. It's good. He may go through some dark paths, but it's better than trying to kindle your own light. When all you have is the name, when all you have are his promises, that it's gonna be okay, because he said it's gonna be okay. Not by your definition of okay, by his definition of okay. I'm gonna trust you, Lord. I'm gonna put one foot in front of the either one foot in front of the other. I'm gonna stay on that path of sobriety. I'm gonna stay on that path of self-control. I'm gonna do the hard thing. I'm gonna follow you. Why? Because I'm trusting in you, I'm not trying to light my own light. That's that those promises, can I trust you? Do you love me? Are you real? Those promises that he's going to be there, that he'll never leave you, that will never forsake you, those promises are so easy to believe in the sunshine. Those promises are so easy to believe on a beautiful Sunday morning at church time. But those, these promises in Scripture, y'all, this book is like, Life tested. It's rugged. It's not built for the good times. The promises of God were actually built, they were engineered for the rugged times. Some of you are into like camping and hunting. Um, uh, It's starting to be fall, and uh, you know, maybe it was even a little cool this morning if you got it early, wasn't it? Isn't that nice? And uh, a lot of outdoorsmen in our church and outdoors women, and uh, I, I got into camping a long time ago. Uh, my first job when I graduated high school uh, was for the state of Kentucky. We had a state RA camp, Royal Ambassador Camp, and I was a camp counselor at RA camp. And, I, you know, that, that, that's that's a... That's a recipe for disaster. I mean, let's take like 18-year-old boys and send them out in the woods with like 28-year-olds. Hope you guys live, you know, like come back alive, maybe. Uh, But I learned a lot about camping gear and outdoor gear and there's all this gear. And here's the thing, when you stand in front of a wall of outdoor gear, and those of you that are, you love to go camping or hunting or fishing or whatever, you'll know what I mean. You stand in front of uh, uh, all this and it all looks so good on the shelf. And because it all looks so good on the shelf, you're like, why would I spend like, $15 $15 for this cooler, when I could buy this cooler that's $10,000, you know, or, and, and looking, it, because it looks good on the shelf. It all looks the same. Like, this sleeping bag will work. This sleeping bag will work. It all feels good right there in the sporting goods store, right? It all feels good. What do you eventually learn? You learn that some products do cost more, but some products were engineered for the outdoors, and some products were engineered for the store shelf. And they look really good on the store shelf, but they're garbage when you get out there. And you need, to, in fact, there's an outdoor company built for the wild. Their whole slogan is, We built our stuff to get beat up out there in the wild. Cause, why? Because that's where you need it. Listen to me carefully. God's promises were not built for a sunny Sunday morning, they're built for the wild and the wilderness of your life. They're rugged. They're, when you're in darkness, that's when you need them. That's when you go to them. That's when you trust them. They're built for that. They can withstand, they are rugged. So who is it that we're asked to trust? What, what reason do we have to trust? For that, we turn to the servant. Now, the servant song is found in verses four through nine. This is technically the third out of four servant songs. We met the servant in 40, chapter 42, 49, here again, and his most famous servant song, the one about by his stripes we are healed and all that. That's coming in 52, 53. Here we go, the servant speaks. And this is a pretty intense song because in this one, the servant lets us in on some personal areas of his life, his communion with God, his mental and physical suffering, confidence. Anyway, here we go. The servant speaks. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. That first part, tongue of those who are taught, the literally can be translated the tongue of a disciple. Some of your translations translate tongue of a disciple. In other words, the servant is saying, I was taught this stuff. I had to learn it. I had to be discipled. Hold on, hold on. This is Jesus? Isn't that something? Does that not blow your mind? This is... This is Jesus saying, yes, I had, the servant is a student. The servant is a learner. The, student, the servant is a scholar. He learns directly from the Father. And that makes sense. We, we who are Christians look at this verse and go, yes, that's what Jesus said. When Jesus was here on earth, he would say that stuff all the time. He'd say, hey, I'm not out here doing Stuff on my own accord, I do what I've learned from the Father. I do what I've seen from the Father. I just do what the Father tells me. John five nineteen. everything I know, I was taught by my Father. The Son does nothing of his own. Jesus learned. Jesus was a disciple. Here we see the great divinity and humanity of Jesus. He was all God, so he wrote the word, and he was all man, so he had to learn the word. Isn't that incredible? Here you have Jesus being taught. And did he know the word? Was he not immersed in the word? You know, um, the way you know, by the way, if someone's immersed in the word, is not how they act, it's how they react. It's not how they act, it's how they react. What do I mean by that? When you go through anguish or suffering or pain or something catches you off guard or surprises you, you don't act, you react. That's where the real you comes through. If I want to know what's in you if you know if you're if you're in a big uh, you know if I have a big bucket of water and you're full to the brim how do I know what's going to splash out when you get bumped when you get bumped what splashes out that's what was in you not when you carefully calculate your next move but when you get bumped you want to know what okay what splashes out when Jesus got bumped all through life what that it let this happen so scriptures can be fulfilled. He told the devil, it is written. And he would quote scripture on his way to the cross in Luke. He's literally on his way to the cross. He's under anguish. The, the, the women cry and he says, weep not for me. Weep, daughters of Jerusalem. And he quotes Hosea. As he's dying on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You literally stab Jesus and scripture comes out. He was immersed in scripture. He was filled with scripture. And he learned it mourning by Morning, can you imagine if there was anybody you would think would not if there was anybody you would think would not need to learn the bible it would be jesus but that's amazing to think about can you imagine young yeshua little jesus memorizing scripture you imagine can you imagine being one of the younger half brothers or sisters of jesus in a bible memory competition Mary, I can't keep up with this guy. He's just like he wrote it. But he had to learn everything. Ponder the great divinity and humanity of Jesus. The one who walked on water had to learn as a toddler how to walk. The one who could feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish had to learn how to feed himself. When he cried in the middle of the night, and Mary crept up to his room and she had a baby monitor. Back then they, did, they didn't have video. They just had audio monitor. Mary would go upstairs and in the middle of the night, as baby Jesus is being tended to, they both look up at the moon, but only one of them can say they made it. My favorite image of all, Jesus being taught, ponder that, he was a disciple. My favorite image of all is to picture him and his dad, and well, him and his uh, earthly father, Joseph, uh, in the wood shop, and he's teaching him how to be a carpenter, Teaching the maker of heaven and earth how to be a good craftsman. (laughs) Now, little Yeshua, are you sure that joint will hold on this bookshelf? You know I sustain the planets in their orbits right now, literally. (laughs) Yeah, I think the bookshelf will hold. In me, all things live and move and have their being. Why did he learn all this? It says he learned it for you, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary to the discouraged, to the person in here or watching this online who says, I, I, I've messed up. It's me. I, is there a word for me? He learned all that. He was disciple morning by morning. He heard it from the Lord's, And, and he did. Right. He, he was always going away. He was always going off to pray. He heard it so he could stain with a, with, sustain with a word, the weary. You need a word this morning. And he knew the truth. I was thinking about that uh, with a word, with, you know, with a word. He could sustain with a word and I know that's that's poetry that's symbolism if I say uh I'd like a word it doesn't mean like literally we're gonna play like this code name where I give you a word it means I'd like a talk with you I know but I got to thinking like if he could only give you one word what would the word be and then that got me to thinking there's a hymn that we sing sometimes in church that was written by Martin Luther do you know this one uh, a mighty fortress is our God do you know this hymn we sing it a lot a mighty fortress is our God you know that one so there's this verse in A Mighty Fortress is Our God where Luther says one word can chop the devil down. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. You know this one? His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. He chop the devil down with a word. And this is how my mind works. I googled, what is the little word that Luther said could chop the devil down. And the internet told me, (laughs) it's quality research. (laughs) Brought me to an article, because I thought that the word has to be Jesus, right? It has to be, Um, and I'm not Lutheran, but even I, come on, it's gotta be Jesus, right? The answer's always Jesus. And and I was told as a little kid, if you're scared and the devil's attacking you, just say Jesus. The little word that chops the devil down is Jesus. And I'm sure that works. But I found, sure enough, there was a gospel coalition article where a guy there's somebody else out there who thinks like me and that alone was worth celebrating. A guy was asking what was the one little word? What's the one little word? Luther actually answered this question. There's a publication where he wrote in one of his publications where he talks about this hymn and he says the one little word I had in mind. And he tells you and it wasn't Jesus. I thought for sure it'd be Jesus. Uh, Or something like that. Um, Faith you know. He said the one word that chops the devil down. The one word that the Christian can speak to Satan and utterly fell him is to look at Satan and say, Liar. Liar. See, in other words, The enemy is a condemner, he's an accuser, and he's built all these weapons against you, and there's all this negativity, and all this, he's always focusing on here's why you'll never measure up, and here's why you're no good, and here's why God can't love you. The problem with all that, poof, it's lies. And Luther knew you're not gonna overcome lies with more or different lies. The only way you can counteract lies is what? The truth. Some of you need this this morning. Your little word, it's the truth of Jesus Christ. is to be able to look at Satan and go, wait a minute. Yes, you're scary. Yes, you're the prince of darkness grim. But I tremble not for you. Why? It's all lies. You're the father of lies. Nothing of what you're saying is true. Now you can't get that. Listen to me. You can't Get that word of comfort to the weary unless you, like the servant, are morning by morning. You've got to get in front of your father. Every day, Jesus had to get in front of his father and here you are my child. You are who I say I am. Because the, the, the next 23 and a half hours of your day, the prince of darkness, Grim, is going to be putting all his condemnation at you. You need to hear me. You are my child. You can't get that word. I've got some applications here as we end. They're quick. Application number one, you can't get a word unless you're in the word. I was at a deacon's meeting several months ago and I asked the deacon who shared this, this, he said someone, a mentor of his told him this. I texted him this week and said, did I get that right? Is that the right application? He said, you got it. Guy would come up to him and say, hey, you have been in the word? Because you know, you can't get a word unless you're in the word. Makes sense to me. You can't get a word Unless you're in the word. How do you expect to combat the lies of the enemy unless morning by morning you hear God speak, not just speak out there, speak to you the truth? Jesus, in in, in verse 4, doesn't it say? He was taught morning by morning. You can't get a word unless you're in the word. Got that one? This one goes along with it. He not only was in the word, he obeyed. Look at verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I didn't just let it go in one ear and out the other. I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. Do you ever wonder why God put your ears on the outside of your head? Because we're not supposed to listen, we're not supposed to kindle our own light. We're not supposed to lean on our own understanding. We're supposed to listen to his word. And when, I, when he opened my ear, I was, look at this, I was not rebellious. It's possible, is it not? It's possible to hear the word and not do it. The Bible says that's rebellion. That's even worse than being ignorant. I didn't know. No, I know and I didn't know it, that's rebellion. Jesus was not rebellious, he turned not backward. It's not enough to be, as James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer. That's discipleship. That's why Jesus was constantly before his father being taught by his father. That's why you can't get a word unless you're in the word. But it's not just enough to be in the word, you can't get a word unless you do the word. I would put that as application too. It's not enough to be in the word, but you got to do the Word to understand why, submit and apply. The application of God's Word is the best teacher there is. Look, you, I mean, Jesus said in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, give to those who ask. Now, there are two ways to learn how to give to those who ask. One is to have a 10-week Bible study on the Greek words for give and ask and those, <laughs> And study it in context and then pull out a bunch of books and have a, you know, the other way to learn that would be for the next week to say, okay, whatever anybody asks this week, by God's grace. I'm just going to give it to him. You will learn more Bible that way than the other way. Why? Because you're doing it. That, that's real discipleship. It's not like we're learning to puff up our brains. We're learning to do it. You know where discipleship happens? You know a great example of discipleship? If any of you want to go see discipleship, I don't know if they'll let you in. There's probably some COVID restrictions. But theoretically, a great place to learn discipleship. If you want to see discipleship in action, just go an hour from here to UAB. Apparently, UAB is one of the great teaching hospitals in our country. And so what do you have there? You have all these medical students. And what are they doing? They're working like dogs. Why? To learn. And they're watching competent doctors. They're watching how, look at just how she cuts this thing open. Look at just how she applies this medicine. Look at how, just how he does this. Look at how he talks to this patient. And they're learning. Why? So their heads can swell up so they can have a bunch of knowledge? No, because they're about, they want to be competent doctors. They want to do this stuff. They want to live it out. That's discipleship. So you can't get a word unless you're in the word, but you also can't get a word unless you do the word. Okay, last one. I, uh, I told you, I, I mentioned that, it, you know, if you're suffering and you're suffering and you have no one to blame but yourself, the word of hope, I told you it's not how much you, you try, it's how much you trust. Lean not on your own understanding. Don't kittle your own fire. Lean on him. And that really, this last one is, it's an application, but it's not really an application. I mean, it is an application, but it's just really just, it's not good advice, it's just, it's just good news. The last one is, you can't get a word if the capital W word fails. What do I mean by that? I want you in the word every day, but you're not saved based on your consistency and your quiet time. And I want you to do the word every day, but you're not saved because of your ability to do the word. All that stuff is in a response to what? You're saved if you have a savior. Do you understand? That's how rescuing works. So the question is, is the word Jesus gonna fail? Is he gonna complete his mission? Is he trustworthy? I mean, God says he's gonna send this servant, and the whole point is trust me, but, but can we trust him? There's gonna be opposition. We don't see why he's suffering until the next servant saw him, but if he quits, the gospel's only good news if it gets to us in time, right? I mean, so let's, you can almost feel, and, at least for me, in in verses six and seven. it's It's like you're almost cheering on our hero. It's like, go, Jesus, go. Don't quit, don't quit. Look at verse six. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. How can we see this verse and not see in it our sinless, spotless savior, Jesus Christ? I gave my back to those who strike. Don't the gospels tell us that He was scourged. He was beaten. They laid his back out, and that Roman torture device, the cat of nine tails whip, where they would lay the whip across the back and pull it back at just the right moment with bits of bone and and, and glass, sharp metal in that whip to pull out, and when it came out, big chunks of flesh and blood came out with it, but he didn't quit. He didn't quit. And, and, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, there are Roman sources that talk about as they would torture prisoners, they'd take a stick and twist it in the beard and then yank the stick out to pull out big chunks of beard and flesh. Turn my face from disgrace and spitting. Don't the gospel show us over and over that they, they mocked our Lord Jesus. They put a mocking robe on him and a crown of thorns. They would strike him and then mock him, saying, who hit you? You're some king, you're some prophet. Then they would spit on him. But he didn't turn back. He didn't turn back. He could have. Listen, at any moment, he could have stopped it all. Even if his hands were tied with just the look of his eye, he could have called down legions of angels to wipe out all those accusers. But he didn't. He held true. Our hero did not quit. Why? Because if he quit, we would be lost. So the Lord God helped him, verse seven. But the Lord God helps me. The servant, we're getting in the servant's mind. What made him go all the way to the cross? He knew God was on his side. He knew that if God was for him, no one could be against him. And thank God that the servant knew he would not be disgraced. Therefore, he set his face like Flint, right? Not turn from his mission. Luke says no fewer than two times the Lord Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, and he set his face and i know i shall not be put to shame he trusted god if he quits at any point they whip him and they whip him again at any point if he says enough i'm done and he stops it we're all lost and if he goes past the scourging and he goes to the mocking and the spitting if at some point he says you know what enough i I, i'm the son of god i'm not going to be spit upon and treated like this we would all be lost And they called out from the ground, you, a, you're Messiah, you're the Savior. You saved others, save yourself. But that's just it. If he saved others, he couldn't save us. And if he was going to save us, he couldn't save himself. He wouldn't save himself. He offered himself up for us and our salvation. Thank God our hero, our champion, set his face like a flint. And that servant was faithful to the end. That's why I wanna be in the word. I wanna hear more about my champion, my hero. That's why I wanna do the word. I wanna know him. I wanna know him in the power of his resurrection. Verse eight, he who vindicates me is near. That's why. He knew he'd be vindicated. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. He knew. He knew his vindication was near. When was he vindicated? Well, it wasn't on that Good Friday, was it? No, on that, on that Good Friday, he just, everybody thought, well, that's it, he's dead, he's, he's on the cross. And it wasn't on Saturday, he's dead in the tomb. When did his vindication come? His vindication came early Easter Sunday morning when Jesus of Nazareth got up and walked out of that grave. He was vindicated. And now he says to all, his enemies, all his adversaries, a most interesting thing. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. That's an, that's an invitation. And if you are an adversary of Jesus, you need to know you have an invitation. Come near. Come near. Any other enemy, by the way, any other enemy says that to you, it's an invitation to fight. Come at me, bro. That's what that's saying. But with Jesus, who is my enemy? Let him draw near. He has nothing to fear. Jesus is a very strange enemy. He's the only enemy you'll ever have who would die to save your life. But that's exactly what you have in Jesus. He's the faithful servant. and Because of that, we too can remain faithful to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that the word did not fail, that it got to us in plenty of time, To hear the good news, Lord, if there's anybody here who's your adversary right now, they're lost. I pray today would be the day they receive you as Lord and Savior, that they they, they draw near to you. And God, I, I pray that we would receive a word, that word to comfort the weary by being in the word this week, a fresh commitment to being in the word, the devotions and the quiet times, and that there would be a fresh desire to do the word, not just be a hearer because of your great rescue of us. Lord, we thank you for this gospel good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.